This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the top tier brewing stand. Visit them online at blickmanengineering.com. Time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zanashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters, back for another episode of Brew Strong. Hello, neighbor. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> That's my uh, co-host, John The Rock Palmer. I'm also here with uh, my good friend, Mike Tasty McDowell. Good morning. Also, hey, Tasty. Uh, hey, how you doing, co- John? Co-host on uh, Can You Brew It? And uh, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about uh, milling today and, and Tasty just uh, went through a big episode of uh, not being able to brew because uh, his his brew shop changed their their mill gap and he ended up having to get his own mill and and all that so uh, he's got some real world pain here I'm in transition I can see it in his face I can see it in his face and you know suffering suffering big time well we're not suffering and you know why why there you go. See, it took you a while to come up with the why. <laughs> uh, because we have a, a fine sponsor in Blickman Engineering. They're taking oh, yes, care we do. of us. Uh, not only are they uh, paying uh, cash money so you guys can listen to the show for free, but uh, uh, Blickman's been sending me uh, some goodies in the mail. Oh, did you get an auto sparger, did you? Yes. <laughs> very slick little item, I must say. Yeah, very cool. I haven't had a chance to, uh, to fire it up yet because... Uh, uh, I'm working on because that. you don't brew. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I don't brew anymore. I uh, I talk about brewing and I write about brewing, and that's that's a, and I drink. That's all you have time and, for, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. Now, as soon as I get this yeast book done, I'm gonna that's I'm gonna fire up a batch for Can You Brew It, and I'm gonna use that that auto sparge on that. And uh, so, uh, and uh, John Blickman is he's, he's hinted at uh, a number of other products that they're gonna be bringing to market here pretty soon. Some innovative new stuff that. Uh, uh, he said he'd send me a sample once once those are ready too. So I'm loving this new sponsor. I tell you, yeah, that's, that's some good stuff, uh, Blickman. And, it's uh, neat. It's neat seeing you know great ideas become reality. I mean, mm-hmm. you you think as you're brewing, you know, it'd be nice if I had something that would do this, and then lo and behold, this product appears. You know, the auto sparger. It's it's a nifty device. It's uh, made out of brass and stainless. It's got a stainless um, float valve on it that mm-hmm. you you set in the in the mash tun right and as that valve is that float ball rises it uh, it opens the valve and 
adds more yeah. sparge water to the mash. You know, it's just an easy way to fly sparge. Yeah, there's no so. power required or anything. It's all uh, all mechanical action. So that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to using yeah. it. And, if, uh, and, and John Blickman strikes me as the kind of guy, like, if you had a, an idea uh, that you wanted uh, to see or some sort of pain point in your brewing process and you wanted him to invent something, uh, you know, send him an email at uh, BlickmanEngineering.com. And, uh, you know, you never know. He'll probably a year later you'll see it. He'll come up with a product uh, to, uh, to solve that problem. I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. All right, so, uh, Justin, uh, we're talking about milling today. We know that for a fact, but uh, the question is, uh, who asked for it, and, and, and what, what, what exactly did they want to know? Here you go. Hi, this is Larry from northern Indiana. My question is, should I mill my grain or buy it milled? I usually buy two or three kits milled at a time to save on shipping and then store them in my beer fridge. Is it worth buying my own mill? If I buy a mill, how do I use it? Should I buy a fixed or an adjustable mill? And why would I ever need to adjust it? Thanks. Those are all excellent questions, Larry. You know, it's yep. not as simple as, you know, do I crush or not crush my grain? Uh, there's a lot of other little things that go into uh, owning your own mill. And uh, even whether you should or not. I, and again, you know, Tasty didn't own his own mill. He's brewing uh, brilliant beer for, <laughs> for many years. Yeah. And then uh, a change kind of forced him into, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting one. Uh, before we really get into the topic, let's um, uh, let's define milling. Uh, John, you want to give us a, a definition of what milling is? Okay. Well, what you're doing is you're taking the barley kernel and crushing it between two rollers, typically, sometimes four rollers. But what you're trying to do is... Um, smash the contents of the of the kernel which is the uh what we call the endosperm it's a protein carbohydrate matrix that contains the starches that we want to uh convert to sugars and then extract and by crushing as opposed to grinding the kernel uh we are leaving the husk intact um this accomplishes two things it gives us an insoluble you know uh medium or a the flake that um, keeps helps keep the grain bed loose, keeps it keeps it uh, able the wort able to flow through the grain bed better by keeping that uh, husk intact, and by not grinding the husk, um, you reduce also reduce the surface area and reduce tannin extraction from the husk. You know during watering. So uh, when you when we crush. Uh, what we're trying to do is make these starches more accessible to the enzymes. And uh, the the degree of crush has a direct effect on how long you need to mash to achieve conversion. So, and efficiency and, and uh, oh, yeah, all those a, things lot, a lot of other things. So, yeah. uh, I, the ideal crush would be everything inside the husk becomes a powder, and the husk is completely 100% intact and, and doesn't fall apart. That would right. be and, ideal, right? And then it in would theory. take about five weeks for that to water. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got all the husks in there. That, that, that's got to help. Yeah. But, but isn't but, that an overbalance of powder, though? When you, yeah. The, the, the finer you grind it, mm-hmm. uh, it, the harder it is for liquid to flow 
around it because mm-hmm. the particles fit together tighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got the husk in there, but um, you really, I mean, the, the permeability of the grain bed uh, decreases with an increase in the crush. You get a so, kind of a cementing effect in between the husks. Right. That powder would, would form a cement in between each husk, kind of binding the whole thing together into a giant mat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You end up with oatmeal and, you know, porridge mm-hmm. instead of uh, a laudable uh, grain bed. So uh, different, you know, the, the ideal crush varies. It depends on, you know, how how you're lo- uh, mashing and how you're laudering that uh, beer mm-hmm. uh, to what the ideal crush really is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... We'll we'll talk about that more. I think in, in as the as the talk goes on. Okay. All right. I was kind of talking about it now, but if you want okay, to wait, that. that's fine. Okay. You know, I'm well, I'm I, plenty I comfortable with just 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 waiting for you to uh, you know get to it when you when you feel like it. But uh, no, uh, <laughs> I you you wanted to bask in my knowledge. I you know I didn't realize. Okay, I'm basking here. Yes, I'm basking. <laughs> um, well, and <clears throat> so while we're on the crush. Um, uh, you know, the, the crush I've always looked for is, you know, the husk is intact as much as possible and the innards of the, the, uh, the, the grain is, is broken up into multiple pieces. How many would you say? What would you say? What are you thinking? Uh, Twelve? Yeah. Okay. yeah, anywhere, <laughs> anywhere, you know, like six to 12, I guess. I had one brewer, um, Adam Lamoureux told me he, he breaks his into two pieces mm-hmm. and, Half of it's still in the husk, he says. Sure, that's his ideal sure. crush. Yeah. Then other guys, like, they just pulverize it to, to no end. Right. See, so I it's all over the board. I wouldn't pulverize it. I, I'd go I'd go more um, with the larger size. And, uh, you know, if you if you get to uh, – there's, there's a book from the, uh, the uh, MBAA, uh, their uh, Practical Handbook series. Uh, hmm. And in Volume 1, they have one on milling, and it's got this uh, table on uh, uh, malt grinds. And essentially, um, the uh, the they 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 have a technique of measuring the grind or the crush, and uh, analysis, yeah. And they they run it through this mesh and um, of, on a shaker table, and you see how much goes through out of various sizes, and then you weigh that amount. It gives you the percentage of how much you know of various sizes you have in in your in your uh in your crush and how you're doing with your crush and the interesting thing about this table is they break down for you uh the size of of the sieve and it's uh you know 1.4 millimeter one millimeter you know 0.6 a quarter and uh an eighth and uh flour and they match that up to typical uh, usage in a British mash tun, hmm. a U.S. craft mash tun, and a European louder tun, and when somebody's using a mash filter. So the type of brewing you're doing, hmm. uh, the type of tun you're using, is going to affect it. So in the British one, it's larger, uh, much more larger uh, par- particle sizes. Coarser so, mash. Yeah, it's a coarser, coarser grist, grist uh, 53% at the uh, 1.4 millimeter size. And then U.S. is 31%, and a European lot of ton, 27%, and on a mash filter, 11%. So, um, uh, you know, with single infusion, uh, they're saying that you go with a, a larger, uh, a coarser uh, crush in order to, uh, uh, for the equipment that you're using. Mm. Yeah. 
because you're in the English system, you're doing the mash and lauder in the same vessel. Mm-hmm. So you t- to encourage good flow, you need the larger particle sizes. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that lauder will take too long. Right. But Whereas if you, if you if you got a mash filter or mm-hmm. a specialized lauder ton, they tend to be shallower and and runoff is easier. Right. You can right. go with a much finer uh, grist. Right. And you get you get a little. You get better extraction in a shorter period of time with a finer crush. And so by by going to – but the, the, the laudering takes longer mm-hmm. comparatively. So what they do there is they pump it from the mash ton, you know, short time, pump it to a lauder ton. Then they can take more time to lauder that uh, grist and use mash rakes and so on to help keep the, keep the uh, bed real fluid and flowing. And then they can they can start another batch in the mash ton while they're watering. Well, you know, I, I bet who could tell us a lot about this? Bob Hansen from Brees Malting. Hey, guys. Very knowledgeable guy. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Thanks for joining Hello. us. Is the noise I'm making, uh, cleaning my dishwasher up making too much noise here? No, no, no. Okay. Not at all. <laughs> so, uh... How about, how about that? Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah, we heard that. <laughs> yeah, we heard that. <laughs> Maybe drop the phone a couple of times. Great, okay. <laughs> so, uh, Bob, you know what is you know the the type of uh, crush you're you're looking for in a in a professional brewery setting? Well, you guys have, have touched upon it. Um, you know, it, it really there's a couple things when it comes to the crush. There's some quality related aspects. Um, uh, those tend to actually be much smaller than uh, anybody would think, uh, unless you're making. Um, you know, American Pilsner. And, but then uh, beyond that, it's really uh, more about what's going to give you uh, good extraction efficiency and good solid liquid separation efficiency in your brew house. So as you guys have already alluded to, it's really dependent on your system. Um, and I would say, you know, the best crush is the one that works good for, for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that's different from a home brewer because, you know, they have different economic considerations and, and uh, equipment where, um, you know, for a large brewer, they're very concerned about getting the maximum amount of extract out because, you know, 1% brew house efficiency for them is millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So uh, they put in specialized mills and really track the things, as you mentioned. Um, there's, a, there's a similar talk uh, or similar good piece of information that's available if you go on our website. Um, and you go under Malting 101 in technical presentations, there's a, a talk on practical milling for the craft brewer. Hmm. Craft, craft brewers are, you know, kind of in between um, home brewers and, and large brewers. And, um, you know, they, they read the same literature and have the same ideas about what they want in a crush, and they have the same worries. But, uh, you know, again, they have different economic considerations and time considerations. So um, it, that talk kind of discusses how a, a good crush is measured, how to optimize it, you know, what its value to you economically is, and, and a few things about it, different, um, different ways of milling. So, kind of, kind of, as you mentioned, it depends on your system. In a, if you're using a, um, a mash filter, as John mentioned, you'll um, basically, um, they have a very thin uh, layer uh, that's used for solid liquid separation in the filter. It's, you know, only like an inch. And you can push in a mash filter. You can push with pressure. Um, so you can... Really, uh, it makes it very easy to louder. So you typically hammer mill it to a flour. I mean, hmm. you grind everything up, um, very you know, small particle size, and and you can get extract efficiencies of you know over a hundred percent using a mash filter. So uh, that's great for efficiency. Uh, it's hard to do on a, a small basis, uh, you know, for homebrew. 
Um, so then, you know, as you mentioned, you, then you've got a, a normal large production brewery trying to do 12 brews a day through a, a five-vessel system with a, a mash, separate mash and a lower ton. And they'll try to get um, a fairly uh, 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 fine grind, but not too fine because that extract efficiency, uh, you know, they're trying to get larger ton cycle times of 90 minutes, and um, they'll gain a, they can gain a, maybe an extra percent or two of extract by milling finer, but it'll slow that, that bottleneck time down in the larger ton, and typically the larger ton is the bottleneck in the brew house. Hmm. So um, they'll go for a finer grind. And then uh, John alluded to the English system um, where, uh, you know, it's combination mash louder ton. Um, there, because you're doing it in both vessels, you're trying, still trying to get as many brews through a day, um, but you're using a, kind of the one vessel so that getting a, a good separation is, is really critical because um, of the length of time in there. Plus, they tend to run just, you know, based on tradition and design with um, uh, deeper grain beds, and uh, they tend to try to keep the mash floating a little bit more um, uh, throughout the laudering process, so a very gentle process. Mm-hmm. Um, so they go for coarser grains. In terms of, you know, a uh, home brewer, um, you know, uh, I, I know some guys like to get, you know, very high um, uh, brew house efficiencies in their home brew and because they enjoy calculating it and things like that. But, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think you're going to save a lot of money by, um, you know, uh, getting a mill that can perfectly tune your crush um, uh-huh. just because the you know the malt isn't isn't that expensive and um, and you're going to spend a bunch of time doing it that that talk uh, uh, that little presentation on our website kind of alludes to that it says well you know you could spend uh, you know you could spend 30 minutes a day extra loudering um, and get a better extract efficiency but when you figure out what that's worth uh, you only save say even in a 10 barrel system you might save five dollars and you're going to spend five dollars being there for the extra half an hour, or so you know um, you're not going to save money by doing it. Uh, quality aspect, I would say, um, you know, unless you're really um, uh, doing a bad job uh, and, and grinding it too much, I wouldn't say it would even a, a um, too fine of a grind is really going to affect your quality because realize that these people like Coors that are making American Pilsner on a mash filter. They're grinding them all to a flour. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've got a, a very fine grind and that extends your loudering time, so now it's sitting around for a long time, you've got longer time to extract the tannins and you're trying to mm-hmm. add hot water to it, then you might be extracting tannins. But mm-hmm. for the normal beer that a home brewer is making, um, not to say that uh, um, you know, there isn't quality considerations. If a home brewer is trying to make an American Pilsner or a Kolsch or something that's super light, um, but in terms of you know tannin extraction, it's it's I would say it's minor for most craft uh, styles of beer. I guess I shouldn't say home brewed styles of beer because home brewers you know produce everything. But for most craft beer, you know tannin extraction and the grind isn't you know isn't a concern. Mm-hmm. They probably have bigger concerns with having a sparge temperature that's water mm-hmm. that's the right temperature because you know and pH. And pH, yeah, mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. probably be bigger considerations. So okay. you know, kind of interesting. Kind of the right grind depends on, on you know, your setup. Um, I would, as a home brewer myself, um, I would, I've learned through years of, years of uh, everything taking longer than I wanted it to, uh, that uh, I would rather go with a coarser grind and, um, mm-hmm. you know, better loudering times uh, and give up a little bit on extraction than I would for, a, you know, a fully optimized grind to get maximum extraction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Bob, uh, this is Tasty. Uh, we talk about grind as if it doesn't really affect the uh, the body and the flavor of the beer. It's more of a, a tuning of of it to your system, but it does affect the body and the flavor, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, as a home brewer, I'm noticing that as my efficiency jumped to eighty eighty four percent from seventy four, I'm losing a lot of the the depth and the character in my beer. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. From uh, just a simple. Uh, grind point of view, what what actually would cause that? Hmm. So it, it's also then probably related to pH, water temperatures, uh, contact time. So if you're taking a long time in the mash and you have a finer crush, that might might have an effect. Yeah, it could be that too, and it depends on maybe the reason why your extract efficiency is going up. If you're doing a better job of um, managing, say, your water balance and some of the other things in there, um, you know, realize that when you're sparging, you're running water across the grain. And uh, there's, uh, you know, some papers out there in the MBA and in the Briggs book that show um, really um, the last warts that you collect um, on a dry basis or, you know, on a solids basis um, contain much more of the things you don't necessarily want. So um, your first runnings from a mash are, are, you know, really good. Um, but when you're down below four Play-Doh, you start to differentially extract more, and you're running in a water across your grain to increase your extracts. You start to differentially extract more tannins, uh, more coloring compounds, um, you know, uh, things that can uh, cause uh, oxidative problems. Um, so the, the last bit of extract is typically the lowest value the re- uh, um, and the lowest quality by far. I mean, some of these things go up by... On a solids basis, they go up like a factor of 10, you know, in the last warts. The main reason that big brewers try to get that extract efficiency is they, you know, they really have to um, because, one, the raw ingredients cost them a million dollars, but, two, if they send that sugar down the drain, um, they got to pay for the BOD, you know, so mm-hmm. um, it's very expensive. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that, you know, craft beers, you know, I, in my opinion, are so, you know, clean uh, and well done is that uh, you know typically your average craft brewer stops collecting at four play-doh and he leaves behind the lowest quality wort which is the stuff below there and typically a craft brewer might you know have a brew house efficiency of 80 percent or 85 percent and be quite happy with that but you know that wouldn't work at a at a big brewery hmm. so so that that might explain why you know if you're getting an increase in your extract efficiency why your, mm-hmm. you know, your beers seem to be maybe not as bodied or clean now can you tell us uh what you guys do there at breeze is that uh some, something you can share with us oh sure yeah, let, let me let me jump in for just a second here bob um we've had you on our show oh and you know in the past a couple times and uh jamil and i you know know you from way back but uh, I thought it might be a good idea to introduce you a little bit more to the to the listeners that may not be uh familiar with who you are who and what you know do for Bob. Greece. Come on. Yeah. Uh, I know it's kind of odd to think hey, about. Hey, I'm, I'm not a Jamil or a John, so. <laughs> <laughs> who is? <laughs> so, yeah, tell, well, go ahead and to Bob and tell us uh, a little bit um, about yourself and about Breeze Malting. Okay. Um, well, I've been a homebrewer for about 21 years. Um, you know, I started back in the dark ages of beer when really you bought it not by the type but by what size package you wanted. And um, that drove me to, to homebrewing beer because um, back then, you know, we anxiously waited the specialty beers that like Liney's Bach and Huber Bach that would come out, you know, once a year. So um, 
uh, quickly, within a year or two, I, I started working at a, a brew pub in Milwaukee called Water Street Brewery, which was an extract brewery. And I worked there um, while I was in college and then uh, um, for about 10 years, actually helped expand their company from one restaurant brewery to like 11 restaurants and uh, two breweries and contract brewing operations. And uh, then I, d- I did consulting as well with them, um, or I guess on my own while I was working there and after that. And then uh, I started working at Brees about eight or nine years ago. And my first job was t- to commission their 500-barrel uh, extract plant, which is a fully automated plant that kicks out you know, eight or nine brews a day, uh, 500 barrels. Mm-hmm. And I uh, worked in their pilot brewery and kind of uh, became in charge of their technical services and recently quality. So now I'm um, their technical manager and, and I'm in charge of New product development and uh, technical troubleshooting for breweries large and small, um, as well as uh, um, uh, re- uh, recipe formulation for BYO magazine and a lot of other fun things that I still get to do with uh, um, homebrewing magazines and uh, the homebrewing industry, including things like this, talking on the show. Well, and I'll say you're one of the most knowledgeable people that uh, in the industry, and you're also one of the most uh, homebrewer-friendly people in the industry. Yep, that's well, why we always like having it on the show. Yeah, there's a lot of smarter guys than me out there, but I, you know, I've seen I've seen it from five gallons to you know five thousand, so that uh, makes me. But I hope, I hope it makes me a bit more practical. And and one of the things that I you know I've always struggled with is I'm kind of a technical and geeky kind of guy too. And you know I read all the papers and books and I get all these ideas in my head that yeah I must do something a certain way you know otherwise I'll my homebrew will be terrible and I'll suffer dire consequences and. And, uh, you know, over the years, uh, I guess I've gained the practical experience that uh, I've learned which one of those things are really important and, and when. And that's what I, I mm-hmm. feel is one of the best things I can share to both craft brewers and, and home brewers alike. And um, like I said, there's that presentation on that uh, on our website, and that's kind of my attempt to deal with this issue because there's, there's a lot of... Um, you know, information out there, and, and it, a lot of it's true um, in some respect, but it's really true depending on what type of brewery you're running. Um, you know, and it maybe doesn't apply to home brewers. Well, that's why I'm, I'm curious about uh, Brees. How, how do you extract for when you're making uh, your malt extract? How do you extract the the sugars from the mash? Well, um, I mean, I'll I'll start off. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the kind of milling that we do at work. Uh-huh. Um, I uh, immediately upgraded from a Corona in our pilot mill when I started uh, working there. <laughs> we have a, a two-roller valley mill um, with adjustable rollers mm-hmm. that I hook up to a drill. Uh-huh. So um, typically I use our pre-ground malt um, in the pilot brewery unless, you know, there's several varieties that we don't pre-grind. Um, or if I'm getting it from somebody else where it's not pre-ground or if it's a new product or something, then I'll, I'll simply use a two-roller valley mill um, and... Uh, the pre-ground malts that we manufacture for brewers and home brewers, uh, we have a four-roller mill. Uh, it's just a dry mill, and uh, it doesn't have any screens in it. And in the plant, uh, which is a 500-barrel extract plant, uh, we've got a six-roller mill, um, which has the typical you know, traditional in-train screens in between. And uh, the way a six-roller mill is working, it's kind of like you guys were talking about an ideal crush. It's, it's the... Uh, it's the dry mill or dry milling process attempt to do exactly what you're doing. There's two individual sets of rollers that are completely separate. And the grain comes down, it goes through the first set of rollers, which are set wide, and those crack the plump kernels. So it just kind of bumps them and cracks them, 
And so the, the real fat kernels, the plumper ones, the ones that would be normally on the, the bigger sieve screen, mm-hmm. uh, those will crack, um, and their guts will spill out, and the small ones will go right through. And then that whole, the, 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 what comes out of those two rollers goes across a series of screens and uh, shaker screens. And it shakes them, and the grits, or the insides of the endosperm and the flour, uh, go right on through. Uh, the grits go through kind of one set of screens and go down one funnel, and the flour goes through um, and actually passes all the way through the machine. And then on top, uh, any of the intact husk or unground kernels pass. Then through the second set of rollers, which are set a little bit tighter, um, those are set to capture the thin grains. Um, it cracks those grains. It then goes across a third series or a second series of screens, which separates out, again, the husk and the, the big grits from the endosperm, and the flour goes through. And then the third set of rollers takes those grits from the first and the second break, and so these are grits from the endosperm, big chunks of the endosperm, and breaks those down. So at the end of the process, uh, you've cracked the big kernels and the small kernels, you've squeezed the guts out, you've separated the guts from the endosperm, and you've broken up the big chunks of the endosperm uh, in a grit miller. And you end up with, say, 5% fine flour, a lot of very small grits that would look uh, about the size of poppy seeds, and uh, almost completely intact husk. So the husk might be in two or three pieces. So the home brewer could do this with a, uh, a hammer and <laughs> some tweezers and uh, you know, right. sorting them well, out. Magnifying glass. You guys mentioned the guy who breaks his kernels in half. I'm like, yeah, that yeah. guy must be, what is he, a samurai? <laughs> how, does he, how does he do that? <laughs> That's not such a bad way to do it, but I, I don't know how he accomplishes it. So, uh, <laughs> But anyway, so you know, and we have a, a mill like that because it's, you know, it's, we're we're going through 150,000 pounds of grain a day, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we want to get the extract efficiency out mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's why we have a you know big, expensive, specialized mill like that. It's not anything necessarily to do with the quality. Um, it's really about getting the maximum extract out mm-hmm. um, in an efficient manner. Mm-hmm. And we have a traditional um, high-speed louder tone. Mm-hmm. So okay, yeah. Right. Uh, can you hang with us through the break? Sure. All right, because I got questions for you on speed of the mill, wet milling, double milling, all that good stuff. Back after this. Brew right. Brew smart. Brew strong. This is Brew Strong. When Blickman Engineering set out to design a great brewing stand, they knew it had to be strong, adaptable, and last for a lifetime. The top-tier brewing stand is now proudly available at BlickmanEngineering.com. It grows with your brewing skills and equipment. Start with 5-gallon coolers on its heavy-gauge stainless steel shelves. Then move all the way up to 30-gallon pots on the high-output burner tiers. Speaking of burners, the custom Blickman Engineering top-tier burners are extremely powerful, efficient, and amazingly quiet. They have safety stops to center your pot 
pot, and they'll last a lifetime and won't rust. The top-tier brewing stand allows virtually infinite combinations from traditional gravity systems to two tiers to completely horizontal. Configure your stand the way you want and have the freedom to change it at any time in the future. Your brewing stand should adapt with you, not force you to learn a new process. Visit BlickmanEngineering.com today to configure your top-tier brewing stand and to find a local Blickman retailer. You'll be surprised with all the flexible features and the competitive price. Start brewing with Blickman from the top tier. Downtown Joe's, located in the historic Oberon Building in beautiful downtown Napa, California, offers an award-winning brew pub experience from 8.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day. For 15 years at the corner of 2nd and Main, Downtown Joe's has been voted Best Night Spot seven times and Best Brew Pub for the last four years in a row. Brewmaster Colin Kaminsky's handcrafted ales, like his Tailwagon Amber Ale and Catherine the Great Imperial Stout, are the perfect accent to riverside dining, live music, and a relaxing outdoor patio. Don't miss the Beer of the Month, special rotating taps, and happy hour all day Mondays. Visit downtownjoes.com to make reservations, peruse their extensive calendar of events, or just read more about their fantastic beers. Come enjoy the fine beer, food, and music. Downtown Joe's, the award-winning brew pub where you'll feel at home. Where were we? You stole an oak barrel from the mist of Ravenwood and Lord Zinfandel the Avenger is in pursuit. Do you drop the barrel and run? Hell no. We need it for a Flinders Red. I'm going to cast Pediacocket's Damnethus on the barrel. Sorry, your ghosts are imprisoned in his winery forever. Ugh, I hate it when Greg's the brewmaster. This sucks. What do we have here? Orville Rodenbach? Buzz off, guy. We got a brew session going. Is that an actual beer? Yeah, I crafted it. I don't really use the dice anymore. I'm a 10th level beer nerd. Are you a 10th level beer nerd? Do you get a long-lasting foam stand when you think about wheat malt? Then you're in good company at Northern Brewer. Northern Brewer has all your beer nerd needs. Ingredients, equipment, and knowledge at northernbrewer.com. Plus, fast, cheap shipping. Only $7.99 for the contiguous USA. And check out Northern Brewer's huge selection of dorky beer kits, including the pre-prohibition lager. Perfect for steampunk. And the single hop best bitter. Now on cask and 10 forward. Make 10th level at northernbrewer.com. Hey, BNers, Brewcaster Jay here. Are you tired of hearing about great beer here in the Brewing Network that you can't get at your local bottle shop? Well, we do interviews from all over the world, and we want to taste those beers, too. Finally, there's a place to turn for great beers from the other coast and beyond. Brewforia.com. Brewforia has an incredible selection of amazing beer, and they're adding more all the time. From breweries big and small, craft beer, imported beer, organic, and even gluten-free, you're going to love all the choices. When the brewcasters can't find an upcoming guest beer, we turn to Brewforia, and you should too. Just check the Brewing Network for the upcoming guest schedule and head to Brewforia.com for their beer. The great guys at Brewforia will even include free beer for you with qualifying orders. Free beer, BN Army. You know we like that. Visit our favorite online bottle shop today at B-R-E-W-F-O-R-I-A.com. That's Brewforia.com. Brewforia. When you can't get it, they can. Hilo, what's it feel like? Take awesome and multiply it by two. Yeah! <laughs> Spraying live beer radio all over your face. <laughs> Can't get any better than this, baby. It's the Brewing Network. Like the Lance Armstrong of the beer world. Except for that nut thing. This is Bruce Strong. 
All right, we're back. We're talking with uh, Bob Hansen of Brees Malton Greens Co. And uh, we're talking milling, milling your grains. And uh, so, Bob, uh, you know, one of the things uh, Tasty and I were talking about uh, on milling, we've both heard that the speed of your mill should not exceed 150 RPM. And so I've set my mill to like 135-ish and uh, Tasty's working on his. Uh, is there any truth to that? Is is that uh, a bunch of nonsense? Uh, it has to do with shredding the husks. Yeah, um, there, um, there, there is. I don't know if uh, simple RPM is a a best uh, best guideline. I would say shredding the husks is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so somebody who probably has experience with small mills, um, you know, that may be their general observation. Um, you know, like for a big brewery, um, I mean, it, it, it's more like if a big mill. It's, it's it's more the speed or the differential speed between the two rollers mm. that'll really cause that shredding action. And you know, you can imagine if, if you're see. talking a one-inch mill, RPM means one thing in terms of the actual speed. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you're talking a six-inch mill, you mm-hmm. know, the the our rollers are you know six or eight inches uh, in right. diameter, and they're yeah, smooth, they're, right? They're, and they're um, smooth. Right? It, it, uh, they are. They're actually. Uh, it depends on which ones uh, you're talking about. But uh, some of them are uh, are fluted as well. Um, uh, but regardless, the speed you know is more. I would say the at the contact points. I, I'm not sure it's as simple as an RPM thing. But mm-hmm. that sound you know. I would say somebody who ever came up with that guideline probably has experience with a small mill, and you know mm-hmm. I'm sure there is some RPM that's right. Mm-hmm. And that seems that RPM 150 seems really fast to me thinking about a big mill but for a little mill that's probably right mm-hmm. and 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 you're saying if if the two rollers are going at different speeds then obviously you have uh, kind of some pulling action across the grain across the husk and and that's what tends to shatter the husk then so yeah, differential get, speed get, is a big dish big issue yeah you'll get a shear mm-hmm. and a lot of times the simple uh you know um two roller mills one of them the one of the rollers is driven, and the other one is free on a set of rollers. Mm-hmm. So then just, you know, the friction or whatever will cause there to be a differential between them. Ah. Um, so, you know, and on the big, you know, like you get a five-roller mill, like all three of the, the crushing ones are all driven. So then you have to actually have to set that differential. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, I think it would be, I think it's the end result that tells what your RPM is. Um, somebody uh, probably... Like I said, um, you've probably yourself then looked at it and said that, geez, if it gets too high, I'm shredding my grain. Um, the magical number is probably more based on experience than mm-hmm. some sort of RPM. Or, or if there was a, a, a magic number, it would more be the, you know, uh, the differential speed in terms of at the surface, like, you know, centimeters per inch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be uh, the bigger factor. Mm-hmm. And what about wet milling? I, I was at Sierra Nevada, and they are, you know, they were wet milling their grain. And, uh, you know, on the homebrew scale, I don't want to put any moisture in my mill because I know it's just going to rust before the next time <laughs> I, I mill some grain. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, the I guess the theory behind that is the uh, the moisture makes the husks more pliable, and they tend not to break if when they're milled. Is there, I assume there's some truth to that as well? Yeah, absolutely. That's... Uh uh, somewhat of a standard in, in the you know m- you know big brewing industry, 
Um, and there's there's a couple types of ways you can add water or wet mill. There's true wet milling where you're you're making a slurry, um, and that maybe isn't uh, that's you see that, but maybe not as commonly. You also see malt conditioning where they'll they'll basically uh, spray some water on the malt to get the uh, moisture up, and then mill it after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Sierra, New Belgium, you know those guys. You look at you know it's funny how much both those companies invest in the best equipment um, because they're I mean they're relatively speaking to the big guys they're not that big mm-hmm. but they've got you know systems doing 12 14 brews a day um, and really uh, you'll see uh, an efficiency improvement or a, I wouldn't say if you, know, you probably get a bit of efficiency but also a, a speed improvement when you go to wet milling because um, it what happens is if you get that husk wet it it maintain it stays very pliable and it mm-hmm. doesn't break up really that much at all um, so by condition milling or wet milling, um, you really get a nice grist. You can imagine I just described to you this six-roller mill, which has got all these screens and parts and multiple rollers to try to accomplish the point of keeping the husk in one piece and getting the endosperm, you know, busted mm-hmm. all out and soluble. Well, now uh, with wet milling, you're kind of, you know, everything gets kind of gushy, and, you know, you basically make a soft husk and some paste and you know it's great for mm-hmm. for you know getting instant extraction um you know and very high efficiency and very good laudering and so uh, it, 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 does it even start the solubilization of the uh the starch as well or yeah it can i mean what, you know once or that stuff gets wet uh-huh. yeah um you know those those enzymes they've got optimas but they're uh you know mm-hmm. they're active over a variety of ranges and that starch is damaged from the malting process so once it gets wet it can start working right away hmm. um that said you know i've also seen some craft brewers you know um uh people like uh you know bells and things like that try to screw around and and you know uh, make their own little wet milling systems i know you guys probably met john mallet before he's a uh yep. you know he, he's an addicted tinkerer and engineer as well and i, I remember he had, was trying to do some conditioned milling just to see what would happen and came up with this you know, fairly professionally made and logically thought out Rube Goldberg device for doing it. And um, but it, you know, the grain got wet. It turns into a, when malt gets wet, it turns into kind of a, a big sticky mess. And then um, you know, if it sticks around like it hangs up anywhere, it starts molding. So uh, mm-hmm. lactobacillus you know, goes crazy. Oh yeah, lactobacillus and you know whatever else is in there. Malt is a you know a veritable uh, mm-hmm. a gymnasium of of good and bad stuff lots of i mean it's very high in micros so mostly lactobacillus like you said but uh so uh from a home brewer point of view yeah i mean you could you could precondition your mill by you know putting it in a bucket with uh you know sprinkle a little bit of water over it and uh, get mm-hmm. it to uh you know get the moisture up um i can tell you uh we do some instantizing of grain i think you know we make brewer's flakes and to do that, we uh, we go through a process where we take the grain and we actually either uh, shoot steam into a channel that's conveying it, or we just convey it through water. And it picks up a certain amount of water just you know in that initial say thirty second contact time, and then it goes into a tank. And in that tank, it tempers so it evens out the the moisture. So the outside mm-hmm. of the the grain is wet, and then if you leave it sit for a little while, say half an hour, an hour, that moisture in a sealed bucket or in our case a tank, that moisture penetrates into the kernel and you get you know, you bring the moisture of the kernel up from say twelve percent to thirty. And then you can easily cook it from the inside out. So that kind of adding water and tempering, you could do that on a 
at, at your home and then run it through your mill um, to achieve wet milling uh, or at least conditioned milling. Mm-hmm. Um, your concerns would be, yeah, you'd probably have to clean the, the goop out of your mill afterwards once it dried up and, you know, you're getting water in there so it could rust. So, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not sure it's, you know, going to give you that much better of a... Right. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for me, it's always about the beer quality. I really don't care about efficiency. If you yeah. told me I had to use twice as much grain, I'd be like, yeah, okay, well, Same whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm right there with you. We, we talked about milling, uh, what we do at Breeze, and I talked about our home brewery. Uh-huh. You, you guys are out by Trumer, right? Yeah. In, yeah. in Berkeley? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my favorite pills are in the world. And uh, I don't know if you know, but they do endosperm mashing. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? No, well, I'm not con- I'm not convinced it's not just a gimmick, but they do it, and their beer is my favorite, you know, of its of its type, uh, produced in the U.S. by far. Um, so what they do is they run it through a, mi- a mill, like our six-roller mill, like I was describing it to you, with screens in it. But then instead of putting the screens, the husks in with the mash, you know, and the and and the grits, they run the husks into a se- separate tank. Mm-hmm. Then they mash all those grits, mm-hmm. you know, basically the endosperm, and then wait. In the last 15 minutes, they re-add their husk mm-hmm. uh, to their mash, mm-hmm. make sure that any it starts it's in it is converted, and then they begin their transfer to louder. So, mm. um, you know, I, so it's to minimize very, uh, contact time minimize with the husk. Minimize contact time with the husk. Huh? So that's wow. kind of the super extreme. Like you know, we're going to remove the husk and do this. And you know, is it the extra thing that takes their beer over the top? Yeah, I I don't know. And you know. Mm-hmm. Kind of like decoction brewing, you know. Uh, right. Lots of people don't do it, and they make beers that win as many medals as the guys that do. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, but uh, it's it's an interesting twist on it. So, and, and we've done that in our pilot brewery to try to make Trumer pills. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, with what success? <laughs> well, yeah, it was it was really good. Yeah. Um, actually. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it wasn't still quite exactly their beer. I mean, we duplicated right. their water and did all the things you do, right? Uh-huh. Um, it turned out very well. The thing we never did it the other way to truly prove if they were, right. uh, you know, and then ran it by a taste panel. But yeah, mm-hmm. we felt good about doing it, and it was kind of fun. So you, you had know. a bunch of beer to drink. You know. Exactly, <laughs> and we had to get some trimmer side by side. Yeah, twice as much beer then. Right. Yeah. Okay, now now what about double milling? I tried this once. Where you run the the grain through, and uh, you know because of the well, and then you run it through again. The, I guess the idea is to uh, you know um, you know, break up the endosperm even even more than uh, uh, without uh, damaging the husks, I guess. But you know the one time through the mill is just fine. The second time through the mill, it's all so fluffy that it won't go through the mill. <laughs> At least that was my problem. Yeah, it might not flow to it. You might have to shake it through because you get the husk in there. I mean, yeah. It's kind of what you're describing is like a, a six-roller mill, you know, essentially. Mm-hmm. The only reason I would ever see the double mill is because when you get, you know, if you want a killer of extract, what really kills extract is when you get malt that's got a wide assortment. You know, it's got some small grains and some big grains. Because then you can't, you can't, it's very difficult to mill it with a single two-roller mill, right? Because mm-hmm. you either pulverize the plump ones and suffer long runoff times and possibly bad extraction from that, or... Uh, um, or you uh, leave the uh, the small ones, and unground kernels in an un- unagitated mash are just you know an absolute killer of extract. So that would be the only reason I could ever see trying to double mill uh, on a homebrewing basis. If you know you get some plump, or if you just wanted to try it, you know, um, 
normally though you might try to separate out some of the husk before the you know with a screen before trying to do that second run and what you would do is you'd set the first one really coarse just to get the plump ones right and then you'd set the second one you know a bit tighter to get the, the thin kernels mm-hmm. i used to do that i uh when i had a two roller fixed mill mm-hmm. i would um run you know a couple pounds of the of the grist bill uh, back through the mill to you know, to grind it again, and and you know get a higher percentage of flour basically in that in to the to the grist than I would if I just ran it all through once. Uh, but I only did it with a portion. I didn't do it with all of it uh, because you know if you make all of the grist flour, you know I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a stuck yeah, mash that's yeah. so gonna take forever to lauder. Yeah, flour flour in a lauder ton is the killer of you know is the killer of loudering time. So. Once you start to get above 10 or 15% flour, you're probably going to have a hard time. Are you broadcasting from the yellow submarine there, Bob? Or Why is it? Oh, I, I'm, is the water and stuff making noise? <laughs> He's taking a bubble bath. Well, I thought I heard you having a beer there, Bob. I'm cleaning my brewery, and yeah, exactly. I'll, 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 move, I'll move away from the equipment. No, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> now, John, you mentioned that you, you did a double grind because you had a fixed mill. Is that right? Yeah, I had a I had a fixed two roller mill, gotcha. and uh, so that's the only I, way you know, could adjust your uh, grist is by uh, not a, you know couldn't adjust, so you just did, tried to do it twice to get a finer, right? Finer just, it just to increase the proportion of fines. I I was getting you know um, de- I was getting good efficiency, um, but uh, it seemed like I was getting uh, you know not quite all the extraction I could out of the grain bill. I you know I was coming up a little light on some of my recipes. And uh, so I'd started running a couple pounds through again oh, partial, to, you know, to, to to get some, you know, get a little better con- uh, conversion and, and extraction from uh, some, you know, proportion of the grist. Uh, and, does, does the finer grist uh, present the enzymes uh, uh, more emphatically? Is it going to get faster conversion or more uh, extensive extensive conversion? Yeah, it's just access. It's a matter yeah. of enzyme access. Yep. So that'd be the same way with a thicker mash versus a thinner mash. Is everything's just closer together? If you release these enzymes, they're just going to be more accessible to the process. Then. Yeah, too. But there's the other part about the size of the grit. Uh, that's like when a six roller mill. When I talk about we get in these big chunks of endosperm, you know, they're great, mm-hmm. uh, but we still crush them into small grits because if you just plop that into the uh, the mash. You know, the starch on the outside first has to gelatinize and then convert, and those enzymes have to penetrate all the way into the inside of that grit. Mm-hmm. And then if, you know, you know, there's like bigger chunks of protein in that matrix, too, then when you go to louder, that stuff's got to migrate all the way back out, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So because, it, you know, it's not just it's not like the stuff washes free. There is some diffusion that needs to go on. Um, so, yeah, if the finer the grind, the faster the conversion will be, and and the easier it will be to separate the extract. That's, you know, one of, like I said, one of the reasons behind a, a mash filter, why those things work so good with very fine grind. You know, from a home brewer point of view, I, you know, yeah, it, the same principles apply, um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's going to save you a huge quantifiable amount of time. That stuff's probably more important for guys who are trying to do 14 brews a day. Not to say that there's probably a homebrew out there that's not trying to do 14 <laughs> brews a day. Not every day, though. Yeah. I would try to do 14 brews well, a day. Only six days a week, though. Right. <laughs> well, and you know, I I have an adjustable mill, and uh, I bought an adjustable mill because 
you know, different grains have different diameters. So if you're milling wheat or rye or, rye. You, know, um, you know, all these things require different different settings. But uh, what I find myself doing is like, ah, I just throw the whole thing in there. I'll, I'll just use more, you know, wheat or rye or yeah, whatever. more rye flavor and more rye. Yeah, yeah and I'll just, right, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I haven't adjusted the thing in years. It's just, uh, you know, might as well be fixed because I'm not going to mess with it. Well, as long as it's fixed right, you know. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. beer seems to come out okay. Yeah, so, yeah. consistent uh, result. That's all I, we're looking for. Somebody was asking me, you know, what's your mill gap? I'm like, I don't know. Just the way I like it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, uh, seems like it's working. So it must be the right gap, whatever that guess, would be. I guess the typical is like forty thousands. Point oh four. Yeah, I've seen that. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I couldn't tell you mine either, Jamil. I mean, even in the pilot brew, I mean, I. What I do is I hook the drill up to it and uh, put the gap in, put some malt in it. Because, I mean, I'll do everything from, you know, we do wacky stuff. We'll do 100% sorghum and buckwheat. And, mm-hmm. and I run it through uh, half a pound and take a look at it. And, you know, right. If I was really curious, I'd, you know, if I, if, if I didn't have the experience, I might run it through a sieve and try to stick it to a number. But, you know, I mm-hmm. just kind of look at it. And then if I, that's why the RPM question. I, I can tell you that on the drill that I use at work, it's about squeezing about halfway. All right. Really noted. If I, I squeeze get... it the whole way, the thing screams and it just pulverizes everything and right. shreds right. it apart. And if you know, squeeze I go too half. Slow, just I'm there forever. So, yeah. Halfway. Good. Okay. Well, and, uh, that's essentially how I set my my gap as well. I I tried one setting, ran some through, and the husks looked all broken up. So I I moved it one notch uh, looser. Right. And I ran some through, and it looked pretty good. And there it sits to this day. <laughs> You know, I don't know how many years later. One question I get time to time is, uh, you know, should I get a two-roller or a three-roller mill um, in addition to the fixed versus variable uh, question? Um, The third roller is kind of of like your four-roller setup, Bob, I would imagine, where you've got the initial uh, uh, pair of rollers that do a... A uh, coarse Break. crush, and then mm-hmm. you go through a sec. Then the, the third roller is beneath that and <laughs> forms a second pair of rollers that's tighter. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about it's, that. It's like Looney Tunes or something. <laughs> <laughs> You get a really good audio visual or audio system. You're like a fully artist there, Bob. You're like dancing <laughs> something. <laughs> but yeah, you but, know. So with three more, you're getting a little bit finer crush. Uh, going through that that second uh, pair, isn't in there right? Yeah, I mean that's and that's you heard me mention a five roller mill before. That's yeah. essentially how that works too. Is that you've got say one, you know you've got uh, it's five rollers are very similar to six rollers. They still got two sets of screens. They got two brakes, but the two brakes are achieved by using three rollers, where the first one set course and the the second one second roller kind of does double duty. Uh, being, you know, setting the gap for the first crush and the second crush. So, yeah, that's how how mm-hmm. those work. Because when I mean, you think about the rollers, there's really only one little, you know, one probably twentieth of the radius that's actually doing something. So, if you are also using the other side of that same wheel for a second crush, hey, you know, we already got a spinning wheel there. Works great. Um, yep. So, and then in the five roller mill, then the last two are in for the the grits um, and the first two. So. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess it would depend on how good of a, a crush you want to get. It'll give you a, a good crush. I, I don't know how much they cost. And I got a question for you guys because, you know, um, there were these valley mills that were great. That guy doesn't make them anymore. Um, yeah. I think. Where do where do you get a good mill? Because I think you know, there's fill mills and monster mills. Who's actually making these things anymore? That are that are good ones. Do you know? You know, for me, I, I have a valley mill, but all the mills I've seen, they're all fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. As long as you know whatever the the, the grist looks like to, when it comes out. I don't know where to send somebody for one of these little mills. Uh, they're because uh, you know, I come in. Oh, what do you use? I'm gonna get a valley mill. Well, they're out well, of business. Uh, Northernbrewer dot com or morebeer dot com or uh, I don't think Blickman has a at one yet, but those are our sponsors. So. <laughs> Yeah, very good. There, there, I mean, in terms of brands, there's uh, the Barley Crusher Malt Mill, there's yeah, the have... Smidling Malt Mill, mm-hmm. um, the, the Fill Mill, uh, well, Monster, and uh, uh, I guess Krankenstein, I think, is still out there um, also. And those are the three mil- roller mills. Um, and I guess as guidance to listeners, you know, if you if you're gathering what we're saying here today. The finer, uh, the finer crush, you know, the greater percentage of, of fines that you get is uh, more applicable when, at least in a pro brewer setting, when you're using separate mash and lauder tons where you can afford to take more time in the lauder. If you're trying to do, you know, a more English system with a single uh, mash lauder ton in a cooler, for instance, uh, you really... You probably don't want uh, a three roller mill that would do a herbal fine crush, right? Um, because you're you're gonna you're gonna be stuck for hours waiting for this thing to water, um, it potentially. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and like I like I noted, you know, I was I was saying to myself, I wanted a little bit more extraction from the, the amount of grain I was using. Um, and I so I ran a couple pounds back through the two roller mill again to get a little higher percentage of fines, mix that in, and I got I got a little higher extraction efficiency that way. Um, now at at the moment I'm using a three roller mill. I've got the first gap set fairly coarse. Um, the second gap you know takes care of the you know generating some more fines and. Uh, my laudering time and my extraction is is right where I want it, but it was a matter of dialing it in. It was a little matter of trial and error to uh, to get the to get the looking at the grist to see the proportions of fines to coarse. Hey, I think you're, you're, one of your listeners mentioned uh, when do I buy a mill, and I kind of at the beginning I said you know I, I don't know if you'll save money if you're mm-hmm. a frequent home brewer, um, you know. There's a couple reasons to get one. One is because, you know, a lot of the specialty grains aren't available pre-ground. Uh, mm-hmm. Things like our smoked malt, and and I've never. Uh, I, I would like to hear this from you guys because you get a lot of home brewing experience. But uh, I've never had good luck trying to crush grain with anything other than a mill, I, a hammer in a bag and a rolling pin. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, work. Right. I've never been to Rube Gold. I've never been able to Rube Goldberg anything together that would allow me to crush mm-hmm. like two pounds of malt in a reasonable way. Right. Well, and you know, part of it is you know storage time because. 
you know, if you want to buy your grain in bulk, yep. and you want to yep. buy, you know, a, a 55-pound sack, if you buy it pre-milled, there's just, you know, there's very stringent storage requirements of pre-milled malt uh, for it to stay stable um, versus, uh, you know, malt that's intact, that's stable under your average conditions for a long time, right? It changes. I mean, once you, you, you know, you expose some fats and some things, so, and, uh, you know, pre-ground, you know, um, I would say, yes, it does have a shorter shelf life. It's easier for it to pick up moisture and, and have any of the shelf life-related issues. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's, you know, like the stuff's going to go bad right away. Um, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like that. it really makes that big of a difference. But, you know, to, to your point, for sure. Also, you know, it may not necessarily be moving that fast because a lot of times, you know, as a homebrewer, your, your supply chain has to go through a homebrew store that goes right. through a distributor that buys from somebody like us. Mm-hmm. So we mill it, and then we send it to them, and then they warehouse it, and then when your homebrew shop orders it, you know, they get it from them, and then eventually when they use up their inventory of pre-ground, then they bring it to you. So... Yeah, you know, so if you're going to say it's got six to nine months shelf life, by the time it's in your homebrew store, it, you know, it may be, um, it may already be four months into that. And, um, you know, that's probably not proof with people like Northern Brewing guys like this that are cranking through the volume, but, you right. know, your average, your smaller place. Um, and so then if you store it for a long period of time, yeah, you know, you very, very well could start to see some some quality issues i agree yeah. um plus you know if you ever and i think most homebrew shops have a mill that they'll allow you to do for free at least the ones that i go to mm-hmm. but if you ever find yourself driving there to uh to you know to mill grain it's like based on the cost of gas you'd probably be better off uh, in your time you might as well yeah, yeah, just in your uh, time. yeah get yeah. yourself a mill for me the 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 things to look for when buying a mill i would say durability one Especially if you're going to brew a lot, and if you're buying a mill, you better be brewing a lot. You know, uh, yeah. you want one that's not going to wear out. Um, adjustable is nice, but not critical. I think what's more important, if you're going to get an adjustable one, get one that adjusts parallel to the two rollers, so it doesn't, you know, wider at one end and narrower at another. I would think. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely not. And um, one that you can motorize. You know, yeah, because yeah. you don't want to yeah. hand crank this thing. Yeah, uh, and those are like the three requirements. Other than that, uh, doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I think. Uh, I'm sure there's you know advantages to other things, but um, you know, price wise, I wouldn't. I wouldn't spend uh, a fortune on it because uh, I think you can get good results with a, a fairly basic mill. Yeah, I agree. Hey, I'll throw out a, probably a dirty word for homebrew millers. Uh, you guys ever use a Corona? <laughs> uh, I think everybody. If you've been brewing for a long time, you probably uh, used one. Uh, when I started, uh, you know, <laughs> they were they were still selling Coronas at the homebrew shop, and uh, uh-huh. I, I I I knew not to uh, do the Corona mill. Hmm. Well, I think you know they're like thirty five or forty bucks. At least you know they used to be, mm-hmm. um, and they you know they kind of just cram you know shatter everything, but. Uh, you know, they, they do okay. They, they work a lot better in a rolling pin and a hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's like if you're just buying one for just milling your specialty malts, you know, or occasional right. things that you can't, right. I don't think they're that bad. Mm-hmm. I do know that uh, I can speak from experience that if you if you try to mill like a whole fifty pound bag through one because they have no bearings, <laughs> you'll, you'll you'll melt the uh, you'll melt the shafts. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Whoops. That, that reminds me of another situation. Uh, I've 
read several times on forums where guys will buy their wives a, a KitchenAid stand mixer um, oh, because yeah. they, they know it comes with a with a mill attachment for <laughs> grinding grain. That's yeah, for making yeah. flour. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and yeah. It's, you can put in like a cup at a time, so it's yeah. not a good option. I, the, no. the two your basic well, hey, the, two roller mill is the best best thing, best starting point. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. All right, we need. To- I, I would disagree that you can get only do a cup at a time because you know with um, a couple milk cartons and some duct tape, you know you can you can put a whole fifty pound bag on top of a Corona or one of those things if you want. Yeah. And uh, I can guarantee you, Bob has done it. Uh, <laughs> let, let's take a short break. Uh, can you hang with us uh, through the break, Bob? Sure. All right, and we'll come back and we'll take some questions from the listeners. Back after this. Your carboy cap on. This is Bruce Strong. We'll be right back. Do you support the Brewing Network? Do you brew your own? Are you looking for an economical, fun, and legal way to do both? Subscribe to Brew Your Own magazine and do just that. All year long, Brew Your Own will surprise you, entertain you, and educate you with articles on beer and brewing from authors like the Brewing Network's very own Jamel Zedeshaf and John Palmer. Each issue is a full pint of brewing techniques, homebrew stories, tips and photos, projects to make yourself, and recipes for the avid home brewer. Get your tough questions answered by Mr. Wizard. And polish your style accuracy with DeVille. A portion of every subscription goes to the Brewing Network, so subscribe today at byo.com slash brewingnetwork or just click the BYO logo on the Brewing Network homepage and support a fantastic hobby and your favorite broadcaster. Brew your own. The how-to homebrew beer magazine. Hey, what are you doing, man? Writing a review of WLP 400. What? You're reviewing yeast? Yeah. White Labs has home brewer reviews of all their strains. Are you new to these interwebs? Check it out. That's awesome. White Labs, your source for great yeast, invites all brewers to visit whitelabs.com to read and write your own reviews of all their yeast strains. Get real-world tips and tricks from other brewers who have made the most of their vials and post your own experiences. It's another way White Labs brings you closer to the best yeast on the planet. And send. There you go. You misspelled flocculate, dude. What? Ah, mother... White Labs. It's all in the vial. Hi, this is Push from the Brewing Network, and I want to tell you about the Brewmaster's Warehouse and how you can get 10% off your next order. I'm a pretty techie guy, but I've never seen an online store like this. It's awesome. Go to brewmasterswarehouse.com and click on Brew Builder. You can whip up a custom recipe so easily even Sven could do it. Seriously, it's slick. You can share your recipe with your own logo and notes to the Brewmaster's database if you want. And the best part, it keeps a running tally of the beer you're building while you're doing it. Then, bam, click Buy Recipe and your cart is filled and ready to go with helpful suggestions in case you forgot something. This thing is amazing. Brewmaster's Warehouse is run the way a home brewer would do it with great service, fast turnaround, and $6.99 flat rate shipping. 
Brewmasters Warehouse and the Brew Builder blew me away. Check it out today at brewmasterswarehouse.com. I'm serious. And don't forget to put BN Army in the discount code box for 10% off your order. Check out brewmasterswarehouse.com. Cheers. BN Army members, are you looking for a discount on hops? Keep listening. Nico's Homebrew Supply at nicobrew.com has hops by the ounce and by the pound. Choose from varieties like Amarillo, Centennial, East Kent Goldings, Hollertower, Simcoe, Summit, Tomahawk, Warrior, Willamette, and more. And adding new varieties all the time, many for less than 20 bucks a pound. Whether a couple ounces at a time or an 11-pound bag, all hops are shipped vacuum-sealed and frozen straight to you. Nico's Homebrew Supply offers store-wide $5 flat-rate shipping and won't waste your money on unnecessary overhead or advertising. They're going bare bones and passing the savings on to you. The staff at Nico's Homebrew Supply loves to brew and is committed to keeping homebrewing affordable and accessible to anyone who wants to join in this great hobby. And for a limited time, use coupon code BNARMY at checkout for a Brewing Network discount. Visit NicoBrew.com. That's N-I-K-O Brew.com for your hops and more. NicoBrew.com, your bare bones buddy in the brewing business. You're listening to The Brewing Network. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking uh, milling grain. So, Tasty... You ran into an experience where your homer shop, they changed, they decided they were going to change the gap on their mill to a finer gap, right? Right, right. which is their right to do, it's their mill. Sure. And um, I guess that was because they felt customers were asking for a finer Yeah, I something was driving like that, right. Unfortunately, you've got your process dialed in over many years and many batches, and a different... You know, crush all of a sudden changed the beer you were getting. So yeah, it was the only thing that I, I mean. I was it's a recipe. I actually made two beers, uh, both recipes that I've brewed. You know, many many times, mm-hmm. and have a great uh, memory of what they taste like when they're when they're done. And uh, both beers came out uh, because of the higher efficiency that I magically got. Went from like seventy four to uh, to eighty four. Uh, this day were they were uh, had less body. A uh, little noticeable astringency, I thought, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, con- they, uh, the attenuation was considerably better. So, you know, I was getting instead of getting finishing it at like fifteen uh, specific gravity, I was finishing like at uh, nine or something like that. So, to me, the beer was losing what I was looking for. These are hmm. both like multi uh, beers. So the attenuation the of the beer even changed. Yeah, it did now, you know it. it I would imagine, uh, Bob, that uh, you know, with a finer crush, uh, you know, maybe uh, you know, in certain mash parameters, times and temperatures, uh, pHs could possibly favor you know certain uh, uh, amylases over another, and maybe that's the result in, in getting a, a better attenuation in this case. Um. Maybe uh, you know I, it, it's hard to say that, that you know what he's saying. I I wouldn't uh, normally attribute to a right. just a grind difference. There's you know there's got to be 
something else going on. But the grind affects a bunch of things. I think we talked earlier about with a, a coarse grind, um, it takes longer for the enzymes to penetrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the conversion could take longer. So potentially if he was using the same, say, conversion based on time, say this many minutes, this many minutes, maybe, uh, you know, the conversion was taking longer. So in in the one case uh, with a, a, a coarser grind, um, you know, it wasn't converted as much and they didn't get much, as much enzyme activity, you know, penetrating the kernels and, and acting on the, the mm-hmm. starch. And in the, the second case with the finer grind, um, maybe it happened a bunch faster and then he had, you know, uh, sufficient beta and alpha amylase to, uh, to make a more fermentable wort. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that would be a, a reasonable explanation of what, uh, what he experienced. Because right. his his process is is quite consistent, and you know I've, I've been drinking his beers for many years, and you know he'll brew that same recipe, and it's it's pretty much the same unless he decides to change it. So, is it a combination mash louder, or how does it? It's a combination, and uh, I always use rice hulls uh, just to because to, of the um, to more to get a more consistent uh, flow through the through the bed. And is it a so the combination mash louder is it a, is it heated or yeah it's bottom want? it's bottom fired oh okay so I uh, recirculate during the whole mash mm-hmm. and uh, oh it's like a rim system okay yes exactly yeah yeah right well yeah, but, you know but the only explanation I'd have for that is that maybe it was you know again taking uh, the conversion was happening faster essentially because mm-hmm. if you think like at the low temperatures to get a higher attenuation especially you. Uh, right. Um, you know, you uh, you need the action of those uh, beta amylases over the alpha, right. and if it's converted right away because the kernels are all very small, then the beta probably has more time to act at that lower mm-hmm. temperature. You know, what I'm saying. I see. Right. Yeah. If you so, were only holding it at uh, you know, let's say 148, 149 for 20 minutes, mm-hmm. and then you ramped it up to 156 for you know. 30 minutes and then you uh, mashed out and and then you went to a finer crush and at 20 minutes at the same mash temperature perhaps you're getting more complete conversion at that uh, that lower temperature exactly i mean that's about the only mm-hmm. assuming everything from the liquid registration everything else was you know that's about the only explanation i could think but also i did i think i mentioned earlier that, that when you do ex- increase your extract efficiency a lot of times the Last stuff you're extracting is not as mm-hmm. high of a quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would maybe explain some, some of the tannins and the stringency that he was getting. Good job. Yeah. But you're using the same same total pounds of uh, uh, malt, right? Yeah, exact yeah, exact same recipe I always use. Okay, right. And so, that- yeah, not really not sparging anymore than he used to. No. Um, it's just a, a finer crush. Now, yeah. how 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 different is that perception, which you attribute to astringency? Is it small or large? Or? Oh, to me, it was large. I, uh, these were beers I made for uh, like uh, Thanksgiving. It was uh, my American Brown, which uh, okay. I've made a zillion times, and uh, my American Pale Ale, which uh, is relatively new. But again, I achieve remarkable, consistent uh, batch over batch. And I, I, I wouldn't even serve them at, uh, at too many events. What was, what was the beer style you were making? American Pale Ale and an American yeah. Brown. Oh, okay. Both mashed at 154. And, uh, sure. And what we're seeing here, it sounds like uh, the grist has no no bearing on the number of short or long-chain sugars available uh, to my ferment. Is that pretty much what uh, we're saying? 
Just the speed at which it does get converts. converted. Yeah. yeah. But the net and result would be, you know, higher I mean, I, would, I would say that there's an adjustment that you could make. Uh, you higher know, you had a coarser grind, and it was uh, you were getting conversion faster and getting a more fermentable wort. That's something you could adjust for. I wouldn't say that, you know, you need to... And you need to defer. You need to do a certain crush to get a certain efficiency or a certain amount of fermentability. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of the part I'd argue. So, okay. um, not, that's not to say that if you you know change your your crush from a course to a fine, you won't see you know analytical differences, extraction differences, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just to say that you should be able to get good extract, good fermentability um, with any you know really almost any crush. Mm-hmm. You could probably try shortening your total mashing time, you know, say cut it back 15 minutes or so, and maybe that'll, and maybe you'll see a shift back to the attenuation and uh, flavors that you're used to. Yeah, and it, you know, and it could be, too, that, you know, um, maybe there were some differences in the malt, you know. You see even base malt, uh, you know, six-row malt or two-row malt, it's, you know, it's alpha and DP has a, it can, range by 30 or 40 percent from batch to batch you could get one that's uh, say a 120 or 110 alpha and then the next time it'll be 150 so you know there may have been other factors in there too but, but just the yeah. crush itself you know i, I would yeah. um i would i'm surprised it had that big of a difference yeah. Right. yeah you're right there's things that i think are under control that aren't i mean could have been like you say a, a different uh, malt analysis on that particular uh, bag of two row and i made them both beers with the same you know base malt could have been the yeast yeah. Could have been the dog didn't uh, <laughs> enough dog here. Didn't, didn't roll in the right stuff. Yeah, I guess not. Yeah, <laughs> Bob. I had another question about uh, the malt. Uh, you know, I'm always uh, interested in the amount of uh, minerals in my uh, in my uh, system in my in my beer and and every every point. Uh, the, the grain itself brings uh, you know calcium, magnesium, and a whole variety of things to, to the mix. Uh, is that something I should concern myself as a home brewer in terms of my total, you know, calcium that I've got into my mash tun and that, that carries forward to the boil, or um, is it insignificant, or no? I mean, it, it could be because I think you're really trying to make something really soft. Maybe I see. Um, then there are some differences between maltsters. Uh, when you think about uh, the malt. Uh, uh, when we're, we're making it, or anybody else, it's uh, about forty to fifty percent uh, moisture uh, in the germination compartment, and so at the end in the kiln we dry that off. Well, the salt doesn't go anywhere, so the water, you know, there is some contribution to the uh, to the overall mash from the minerals of the water that were used to make the malt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are subtle differences uh, between maltsters and, you know, one may be higher in sodium or, or other minerals. That said, uh, a normal brew at the end of the day is maybe 10% malt, and and maybe of that there was at one time uh, a third of its weight was the water, so it would be like adding, uh, you know, 3 or 10% of a different water. Hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's... It's nothing, but uh, I wouldn't say it's that big of a, a thing, too. But it, it would, I say, um, lead to maybe some of the differences in flavor between, um, you know, malts produced at different locations or by different monsters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Great. We need uh, one more short break, and when we come back, we'll get to listener questions. Back after this. 
Strong. This is Brew Strong. From the stovetop to a camp burner to some kind of brew stand, most homebrewers follow some version of this progression. With each move, a homebrewer will often have to change a lot, if not all, of their equipment. Until now, Blickman Engineering brings you the top-tier brewing stand, the only brewing stand that grows with you. For example, buy a top-tier floor-standing burner now, and it'll bolt right to your top-tier brewing stand when you're ready for all-grain brewing. The top-tier brewing stand is perfect for 5-gallon to 20-gallon batch sizes. Its modular design is adjustable and accommodates everything from small footprint coolers up to 30-gallon pots. How does the top-tier brewing stand do it? At its core is a strong, heat-treated, and anodized aluminum main post. On all four sides are built-in T-slots for the adjustable heavy-gauge stainless steel shelves and beefy burner tiers. The tiers accommodate any manufacturer's pots or coolers up to 21 inches in diameter. Best of all, not only does the top-tier brewing stand grow with your skills and equipment, but it easily knocks down for long-term storage or transport, too. The top-tier brewing stand from Blickman Engineering. Learn more at BlickmanEngineering.com and to find a local Blickman retailer and start brewing from the top tier. Nico, listen, our lawyer said that we had to do this for one hour, and after this, we don't have to talk to each other for three more months until the, the next meeting. Kids. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm supposed to have more lines. I'm the professional. <clears throat> hey, it's Sully. And I'm Nico. And we opened the 21st Amendment 10 years ago at 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park, to make great beer and have a great time doing it. That's right, because to us, the 21st Amendment is more than just the right to make beer. It's the right to experiment, to be innovative, and just do things differently. And so now, we're putting our craft beer in cans. That's right, cans. You can find our world-famous Hell or High Watermelon Wheat Beer at Brew Free or Die IPA in the Northeast, Northwest, parts of the Midwest, and Alaska in cans and on draft. So next time you're at your local neighborhood pub or good beer store, be sure to ask for 21st Amendment in cans. Because everyone likes it in a can. Tasty Crack Cans. Tasty Crack Cans. Williams Brewing is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and freshest ingredients and the best customer service in the business. Cut hours off your brewing sessions by using one of our 11 varieties of famous Williams malt extract. Our Williams Belgian Pale Extract is mashed with pure Belgian two-row malt and a small percentage of Belgian wheat malt for an authentic Belgian character you just can't get from other extracts. Or check out our unique fermenters, two-and-a-half-gallon kegs, paintball tank-based draft beer equipment, bottling aids, and much more. We even have our own line of precision hydrometers. Go to williamsbrewing.com to browse our vast selection. That's williamsbrewing.com. Orders placed by 3.30 p.m. Pacific time ship the same day. Brewing is easy. The Williams way. There's an app on the iPhone for just about everything, including beer. Apps for finding a pint of beer. Apps that look like you're drinking a pint of beer. And now, there's an app for brewing a pint of beer. Introducing BrewPal. 
the most all-inclusive beer brewing app for professionals and hobbyists that fits in your pocket and goes wherever you do. Recipe formulation that can be imported and exported with a customizable database. Mash and sparge calculations, yeast pitching rates, carbonation tables, and more. Available right now for less coin than a pound of grain. See BrewPal in action at brewpal.info and download it for your iPhone at a special introductory price right now. BrewPal, all the brewing software you need right in your pocket. Hey, Push, the new brewery's looking good. Thanks, Fen. Piece by piece. Well, let's fire her up. Whoa! Is that a new kettle? Yeah, just got it brand new, but paid half price. What? And that blade scale? 40% off. The new tap handle? Five bucks instead of 13. Got a new regulator for the brew stand, too, but five bucks instead of 25. Dude, where are you stealing all this stuff from? Where else? The more beer deal of the day. Announcing the Beer, Beer, and More Beer Deal of the Day. Every day, a new fantastic deal from big items to small that will blow you away. Boil kettles, carboy carriers, sterile siphon starters, digital timers. Watch morebeer.com every day for a new deal, and you just might find the item you've been waiting for at a price you cannot believe. Hurry, because stock is limited on most items. And that sweet Guinness cap, let me guess. The The More Beer beer Deal deal of the day. Day. Yeah, I knew it. Come on, let's brew something. Find the more beer deal of the day at morebeer.com. Celebrity voices impersonated. This Sit down next to it, grab yourself a paper towel, and watch those yeast have sex. You're listening to the Brewing Network. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zanashef and John Palmer. Putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong. Hey, we're back. We're also here with uh, a couple of brewing geniuses, Bob Hansen from Bree Smalting, uh, and also uh, Mike Tasty McDole from the Can You Brew It show and the Sunday Session. Yeah, we've covered uh, milling malt. Uh, extensively, and uh, now's the time for questions from the chat. If you listen live, you can uh, join the chat, uh, ask questions, participate in the show. Good stuff. What do we got, Justin? All right, Farm Brewer's in the chat room, and he wants to know about crushing wheat versus barley. He says he's heard that you should uh, run wheat through the mill twice. What do you guys think about that difference? You want to tackle that, Bob? Um, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure why you would do that. Um, in, unless it, the wheat had a, a wide assortment, you know, we talked about that earlier, where you get kernels of a, you know, very different size, mm-hmm. um, and you have ungrown. Typically Oops. with wheat, I, I go with a coarse grind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just run it through whatever my regular setting is. I know, uh, uh, you know, wheat doesn't have a husk, so you can go ahead and you know grind it on down to whatever you want. Um, wheat tends to be harder. Then uh, you know uh, barley malt. So um, you know if you're grinding it, I don't know, in something that requires you to crank the mill yeah. or something, that might be might be a little more difficult. Yeah, you might want to set it wide in that case and run yeah. it through once just to crack it, and the second time to break it. Is he talking about raw wheat or uh, malted wheat? You have any idea? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, raw yeah, wheat. I assume malted wheat. Oh, okay, yeah, because raw wheat, uh, maybe that's a reason to do it because, uh, you know, it's especially like uh, high-protein hard red or something like that. Uh, it's hard as a rock. Yeah, especially if you're hand-cranking it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That could be the reason, yeah. 
but other than that, I, I don't know why, from my experience, why you would need to run it through twice. Mm-hmm. You didn't hear it from me. <laughs> you certainly can, though. <laughs> There's no husk to worry about, so it, it'll actually go through fairly easy the second time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Alonzo in the chat room wants to know about the flavor differences you get when milling your own grain, you know, say that on brew day, um, or pre-milled grain. So maybe you order a kit and it has to be shipped to you. It takes a week or two. Uh, you guys notice flavor differences from that fresh crush compared to a week or two? Week or two under, you know, regular conditions, you know, I, I don't think you'll, you'll notice a difference even in side-by-side taste. I would theorize that, you know, the longer the duration, perhaps, yes, you'd, you know, with the malts stored under the same conditions, longer duration, eventually maybe you'd, you'd, you'd notice some, some difference. Yeah. But, you know, those, those grains are pretty, um, you know, oxygen still is going to get into them. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with, uh, you know, for the fresh stuff, uh, being in bulk might have a shorter supply chain to you. Mm. Just because I wouldn't be worried about milling a, my grain a week ahead if I was storing it under good conditions or, or two weeks. Uh, but, you know, if the if the place that sold it to you uh, in your kit, for example, if they didn't mill it themselves, if they bought it pre-ground and, you know, that was a couple months and then they bagged it up and then they put it in kits and those kits sat mm. around, then... You know, that pre-ground malt, if it came in the kit like that, well, potentially, yeah, there could be, you know, it might actually be six months since it's been crushed. Right. Not the two weeks. But I don't know what, you yeah. know, these guys do in terms of their supply chain. They may, they may when you order the kit, crush it fresh and send it right to you. So. And if it's in a uh, really humid area or a really humid time of the year, that might have an effect as well. What What's the best way to store uh, grain, crushed or uncrushed, uh, Yeah, let's Bob? define good conditions, yeah. Uh, well, g- crushed or uncrushed would be um, basically in uh, you know low relative humidity, say below fifty percent, and typically you'd like to put it in a sealed bag. Um, you know, all food products and everything in general is in equilibrium with moisture, either within its package or um, outside of its package. And you know, you don't you don't observe as much with uh, malt and dry grains these processes. Um, you might see it in a cracker where crackers get stale in your house. You definitely see it like if you leave cheese out overnight or bread. They're in their package. They're in nice equilibrium with their environment. But you put them into a house which has below seventy percent relative humidity for sure. Typically, you know, maybe more like thirty or forty, and they dry out. Um, malt uh, stored in an open container uh, when we dry it down to 5% moisture, it's at a, a equilibrium relative humidity of about 20%. So if you store it, you know, in a, either a permeable bag or uh, in the open, uncrushed or crushed, in anywhere above 20% relative humidity, it'll eventually take up moisture. And so, and when it gets to about 70% moisture, it'll actually be, instead of being, I'm sorry, 70% relative humidity, uh, when it gets to about that level, the malt can actually go from, say, 5% moisture up to about 15, and it'll start to get slack. If it's stored above 80% relative humidity, in general, anytime you get anywhere from your house to your basement to uh, you know your refrigerator, anytime you're above 80% relative humidity, uh, mold can grow. So you definitely never really want to store anything, you know, in conditions that are higher than 80% relative humidity. If you store malt in a perm- permeable open container, 
in 70% humidity, it'll pick up as much as 10% moisture. And, that, and if you're measuring your malt on a pound-by-pound basis, you'll definitely see your extracts go down because now there's 10% more water there, right? Mm-hmm. That's 10% less grain. Um, and eventually, you know, it'll, uh, it'll oxidize quicker under those conditions as well. So, you know, ideally you would say 40% or below relative humidity or, you know, put it in a sealed bag. Right, and if if uh, when your malt goes slack or when uh, you know it takes up this moisture, it tends to oxidize faster and and stale and yep. and the fats uh, start to uh, break down. So, um, and I've tasted uh, that in competition. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, if, when you're tasting beers that are made from old malt, there is a a certain mustiness and and uh, a slight oiliness to the flavor of the beer mm-hmm. that's been made from old malt. Well, and one of the things to do uh, to to check on your the storage of your malt is taste some on a regular basis. When you get it fresh, it's nice and yep. crunchy and 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 crisp uh, yep. feeling in the mouth. And when you uh, when it starts taking up moisture, it becomes softer and uh, you know what they call slack, and uh, it tends to be you know more mushy and mealy. And um, uh, then you obviously you're getting. Uh, your, your your grain's going bad uh, quickly. So that, that'll tell you how long you can store something in your environment. Yeah. I mean, in general, though, in a, if you keep it within a moisture barrier bag or sealed pail, you know, it'll multiple actually store a fairly long time, um, you know, literally like well over a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the caramel malts uh, are a little bit longer. Black roasted malts, um, you know, they're almost infinite, you know. Right. Um, kind of like coffee, you know, you can keep coffee pretty much forever. It may lose some of its aromatic quality, but a lot of that in a black malt isn't surviving anyway or isn't there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it, it would depend. But in general, it, it really depends on relative humidity and keep it in a sealed bag or in a dry area. Our bags, uh, depending on the type, all our pre-grounds malts go into bags that have moisture barriers. Um, the unground malt, the whole kernel, uh, doesn't. It's actually, uh, those bags don't have a moisture barrier, um, except for some special customers that have very humid environments. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's exposed to the uh, air, you know, because mm-hmm. that, that paper that's there does isn't an effective mm-hmm. moisture barrier. So normally with any dry grain, you know, cool dry area. Well, i, I got to figure, you know, one of the things against crushed malt is that, you know, it's got a higher surface area, and the higher your surface area... It's got to be a, a more rapid uptake of, of moisture and oxygen. Yep. So it that gets trumped by the you know moisture and oxygen, but yeah. Right. But uh, again, in a in a sealed uh, barrier bag, then it's going to be fine. Yep. It's you know probably better than uh, whole grain stored without the barrier. Absolutely. Yeah. That's kind of was actually my point. Um, so. Yeah. Okay, right. Sedge in the chat room wants to know if you guys could cover a little bit of the do-it-yourself drill mill method. Well, uh, these some of these mills come with a little adapter mm-hmm. for the drill to hook up to, and and you just put your adapter chuck on your drill and uh, in your in your drill chuck, and then uh, pull the trigger. 
In my limited ago. experience, <laughs> if you have one of these uh, manual drills, halfway. Yeah. it's the way to go. I did a, you know, I had a hand oh, cranked one. You you gave it to me, uh-huh, Jamil, uh-huh. and I did a, uh, I, I ground a, a, a ten gallon batch worth of beer through that with the hand crank, and uh, you know I'm a weakling, and it it tired me out halfway through. Man, it was rough. I definitely recommend figuring out how to use that drill bit. Right. right. <laughs> it's yeah, and, I do uh, too. Yeah. You know, uh, it's not that difficult to hook up a permanently mounted motor either. And that's that's what I've got. And then you don't have to do anything. You just uh, you know you flip a switch and off it goes. You can control the speed uh, precisely. It'll be the same speed every time. Where do you get a motor like that? Uh, I went down to some motor rebuilding place, electric motor place, and uh, for thirty five bucks he sold me a three quarter uh, horse motor for you know that that he had wow. rebuilt. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, cheap. And he threw in some sheaves and. Uh, I ended up having to buy a different diameter to get the RPMs I wanted. Okay. Uh, I bought a junction box from uh, you know the Home Depot and uh, wired it up with, with a switch. And uh, there you go. All right. Now, does that motor come with a capacitor? Because that, that's what people are saying. That oh, you don't yeah, have the, that. the start capacitor? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, wherever you get your motor. You know, if you're trying to repurpose a motor for something like a, a dryer or a washing machine or something like that, then sometimes you have to worry about you know startup capacitors and things like that. But ones that are wired already to to go, um, you don't have to worry about it. Okay. You cool. know if you get one off a fan or something like that, they tend to be. If you plug it in and and, and it turns, then you know all the pieces you need are in there somewhere. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Okay. And last question from the chat. Although keep in mind we have our Q and A show coming up. You can ask yeah, all your brewing questions. Any kind of questions you got. Yeah. Uh, but Push and Matt and JP are having a, tra- a party down at Push's house uh, today, and they're listening to the show. They want to know uh, how would changing a mill setting from three, like say three to four, be different than running the uh, the grain through a mill twice? Well, I prefer using eleven. I have a mill that goes to eleven. <laughs> Turn this one to eleven. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and I prefer that because it's it's one better than the mills that go to ten. Yeah. Right. That is really my preference right there. Of course. So that's that's how that's the answer. <laughs> that's the difference. Yeah. Four is one better, right? <laughs> yes, four is one better than, than three. They don't they don't understand that. Um, you know, double milling I think you, you use the same setting, right? And uh, the point being, the husks, you know, once you've got some of the endosperm out, um, you know, they don't get broken up as much the second time through, but, you know, larger pieces of endosperm will get cracked again, and, you know, you get a finer, finer grist in the end. Does that, does that make sense, Bob, or am I talking out my yeah, ass no, like usual? That, that, no, I don't think you normally do that, but, um, <laughs> no, it makes sense. I can't... You know, like it's hard to say from three to four. You know, it's kind of what you were alluding to there with the number thing. Yeah. I, you know, but uh, adjusting your mill versus uh, um, double milling. Um, you know, uh, I think if you can adjust your mill, you probably should, as mm-hmm. opposed to um, taking a bad adjustment and double milling it. So right. I'm not it's sure. But if you want, maybe switching from one mill to another, maybe that mm-hmm. leads this question. I would say uh, uh, you probably get a better grind with an adjustable mill than you do with a double right. uh, by double milling it just because you know um again when you're double milling it, you're picking one setting you know i'm assuming if it's double milling he's doing the same setting which uh mm-hmm. you know, you're never going to have one setting that's going to be perfect you're better to adjust to the grain all right and that's it from the chat room guys all right 
Well, thank you very much, Bob, for joining us. I appreciate you you hanging out with us uh, for such a long time. Uh, you continue to be one of my absolute favorite people in the the entire brewing industry. So. Well, you guys too. It's fun to it's fun to chat. Uh, this is great. This really works well. You can see I can actually get things done here in the uh, home brewery uh, while we're on the, the show. I'll do less of that if you invite me back, I promise. Yeah, I'll um, be talking to you about that uh, when we get off the phone here, Bob. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it was so good. You get to have good audio. But, oh, yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, what was I, that I really, moaning going on there? The, the bad part of it is we can't be in a room drinking beer together talking smart because yeah. I, I really like it when I, I get to do that with you guys. So well, thanks for the uh, invitation. It's good to hear from you anytime. Are you going to make it out to the uh, homebrew conference in Minneapolis in June? Um, you know, I, I have to, to check. Normally, that's a. Um, I'm always there. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that there. I believe it is it like the exact same time as the Master Brewers Conference. Uh, I think it's the exact same day. So um, I'm uh, not sure because I'd probably be presenting at the MBA conference. Right, right. And uh, but you'd have, have more a, fun with us. I would, and I'd like to be there better. Believe it or not, <laughs> the AHA I think is the best. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. one of the, the best place for beer drinking in the U.S. is the AHA National, without right. a doubt. So. Um, yeah, hopefully I'll make it. I'm I'm not sure though. Okay. Well, if we see you there, uh we'll we'd love to share a pint with you. Great. All right. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Yeah, so, thanks. Thanks so for that's being our uh, that's our milling show. Thanks, Tasty, for for joining us sure, and glad uh, to be providing here. your sage uh, advice and uh, interesting uh, comments on the on the subject. If you get a chance, uh, visit our sponsor, Blickman Engineering, BlickmanEngineering.com. Great stuff. Uh, also, go by uh, BYO. You can uh, subscribe through the homepage of the Brewing Network. Just click on that big BYO logo, and uh, half of that goes to the Brewing Network. Also, uh, we got uh, all sorts of uh, good merchandise in the store. We got uh, uh, Brewing Classic Styles. We got uh, uh, How to Brew. And... Uh, Pick that stuff up, and uh, all the profits go to the bottom line of the Brewing Network, and that helps keep these shows running as well. And uh, if you're listening live, hang out. We're going to do live Q&A. You can ask any brewing questions you want. Until later, brew strong. Brew strong.